Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according According to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. Well, good day and welcome to the Spirit of Sport on Sydney's newest home of sport, 1170 SEN. I'm your host, Jason Stevens. So glad you're able to join us tonight. Now, over the past few months, we've interviewed some of Australia's greatest sportsmen and women, from Steve Ward, Justin Langer, Yana Pittman, just to name a few. But our special guest tonight is not an athlete. But he plays a role that's just as vital. His name, Dr. Phil Jauncey, and he's a leading sports psychologist. And he's a leading performance psychologist and has been described as Wayne Bennett's right-hand man. He's also worked with the South Sydney Rabbits, the Australian cricket side, the Brisbane Lions, and for 15 years with the Brisbane Broncos as their sports psychologist. He's published three books and is regarded, I've got to say, as a trailblazer in his field. Phil, it's so great to have you. Welcome to the Spirit of Sport. It's good to be here. Now, I just want to clarify, because the Broncos haven't been doing too well, but you haven't been with them for the last few years. Is that right? That's right. As soon as Wayne left, uh, they didn't need me. So, so I haven't, if Wayne's there, I've been with him. If Wayne's not there, I haven't been with him. I have a feeling they, they may have sort of wanted to hold on to you, considering the, last, the recent years, because it's been a, been a tough ride for them. Yeah, I and mean, I think one of the difficulties is that um, any any professional team, you, you need to have um, a whole infrastructure working together. And I, I think a lot of things, when uh, from, my, from from the outside, obviously with the inside, when Wayne left, uh, a lot of those things changed. Uh, hopefully that now Kevy Walters and Co can get him going again. Yeah, well, Kevy he brings with him a great uh, history and a great culture. Obviously, having been under Wayne and. And he had great success as, a, as an Origin coach as well, and uh, uh, I, I think I think things will change. But are, you know, change takes time. Don't you agree? It, uh, I think um, it does. I mean, there's a whole group of things you have to to work on to bring it about. And uh, I think that uh, from what I'm hearing and seeing, it looks like they're trying to do the right things there. So it's you know, hopefully for the the team and the club, uh, it'll work for them. And then it'll be interesting to see if they get a, a local team coming up here as well. Uh, to help that sometimes having competition locally helps you improve. Absolutely, absolutely. There's nothing um, more um, motivating than having it as a neighbour, you know, a, a, a team that's vying for the same fans and for the same sponsors and you know, it puts a greater pressure and pressure often if it's handled the right way, which we can, I'd love to talk to you about, um, can bring out the best results. Now, usually on this show, we, we do a sort of a top 10 getting to know you, but to be honest with you, I've got so much I want to talk to you about. I, if, I hope you don't mind. We're just going to go straight into it, if that's okay. Absolutely. Because I was doing research uh, on you, and you know, you have four degrees, uh, a master's and a doctorate in counselling and education, in educational psychology. I did a Bachelor of Commerce degree at the University of New South Wales, and that was enough. 
can I just say? Four, <laughs> four degrees, you must have racked up a pretty huge hex fee. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. In those days, though, we didn't have hex. We just had to pay it as we went. And oh, so, right. So being a builder's laborer, working and, uh, you know, uh, all different things in the automobile upholstery and so forth, to work my way through uni. So, yeah, I was paying my way as I went through Wow, that's a that's a that's a, even a greater achievement. I've got to say. Can I can I ask why you got into the world of psychology? Well, uh, my dad was a psychologist. Um, a little bit of a background about myself. Uh, during World War Two, my dad was uh, an industrial psychologist uh, for Australia, and he you talk about four degrees. He at that stage had six degrees. Uh, he had four degrees, four bachelors, two masters. And when I was one, and just a bit about the accent, when I was one, I was born in Adelaide. He went to the United States, get his last two masters and two doctorates. And one of his doctorates was in theology, his other doctorate was in physics. And uh, he was a church minister in Southern California. And when I was nine, he got involved with the space uh, situation. So he actually helped design uh, Explorer, the second satellite at the Sputnik back in 1959. Wow. And that took and that took me to a place called El Paso, Texas. Now, accents that you have, and you might notice that was funny accents. Yeah, yeah. Accents that you have actually are finalized when you hit puberty. It's called bilateralization of the brain. So the uh, two hemispheres interact. So if you come out from Scotland at age five, you lose your brogue to- totally. If you come out at age 17, you never lose it. So when I was a teenager, my accent, like both my folks were from Perth originally, but at school, they all talk a lot. But yes, you know what I mean to Southwest Texas. But the other, most of the others are from Mexico, Spanish speaking. So now, when I came back to Australia back in uh, 1965 um, to do senior, which is from those days high school and uni, um, I had an accent that's a Creole. It is a mix of Southwest Texas, Mexico, and Perth. And other than my brothers, nobody has an accent. People always say, Where's your accent from? Now, when I speak Spanish, People say, oh, you're from Mexico, because I learned Spanish. Wow. Yeah, so that's a little bit of trivia there for you. No, that's, that's a fascinating history, fascinating history, I've got to say. Uh, uh, and did, you, did your dad encourage you then to, to, to move, move into this space? Well, was he your inspiration? or? Well, he was an inspiration for me, but actually what happened is the reason we came back to Australia, my dad started a theological college for, for ministers, church ministers. Wow. And I was a student at Church Minister. So for my first training was as a church minister. And I still work in a church you know, part-time. So my know, first thing was a church minister. I didn't minister. know that. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Uh, because often and on this... so um, yeah. what happened was that I trained as a minister, but also, of course, in ministry, you need counseling. And since my dad was counseling, so my first degree at University of Queensland, I had one major was in psychology, one major was in, 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 in history, and, um, and I had to do things like Greek and stuff like that. And then my second degree was in um, child development, but it was also a divinity degree. So that's how my first two degrees got. And then when I was in 1972, I went back to the United States because my dad, I went over there to get my master's and doctorate from a place called New Mexico State, which is a state just north of Texas. And um, I did my doctorate in educational psychology and counseling. And then that brought me back to Australia uh, in 1975. I was a lecturer at a teacher's college, uh, teaching teachers 
uh, in education in psychology. And that's how I got into rugby league because they had a, a team there in rugby league and they needed somebody to help them. Now, I, I was, you know, I did raffles, strapping, all that sort of stuff. And um, the um, and that got me into psychology. In those days, there's no sports psychology. It didn't exist. Mm. And so I started working with, that's where I met Wayne Bennett. He was coaching police in those days. We, we actually, uh, I worked with Senator McAuliffe, uh, who was in charge of, I still remember telling him in 77, we should have a state of origin like the Aussie rules do. Uh, he said it'll never work. And two years later, they started Aussie rules. Um, but so a, I started at the state of origin. So that's a little bit of a trivia background about my background. Wow. Wow, that's really interesting. I didn't know, uh, uh, especially because, you know, I'm a Christian as well, and I, I didn't realize about your, your faith background. Uh, oh, yeah. Which is, which still, is yeah, which is. Still exa- preach. Yeah. Oh, you still do? What, what, can I ask what? Wait, what church you you go to? Well, it's occasionally I, I preach at a church called uh, Brisbane North Church of Christ. Oh right, okay, yeah, that's fantastic. Actually, when I when I uh, first you know made a commitment to Christ, and I and um, as distinct from going to church every week, which I'd done my whole life, um, often several times a week, and then someone had informed me that you know you can actually grow closer to God. And um, one of my teammates, actually Brad Mackay, who was a a really great player but a great guy and and uh, I, I found myself in a, ch- a church of Christ actually in uh, Bexley uh, in New South Wales okay. and, and I remember th- all I remember was they were really clapping and they were singing passionately and I just remember thinking this is not for me <laughs> this is not for me <laughs> but then someone said, someone said to me he said but when you go to the you know you go you run out in front of crowds and people are cheering and they're clapping and they're happy and and they go, don't, don't you think God? People could be happy about God. And I thought, that, that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> people could be happy about God. It's just I came from a religious background where it was very solemn and almost at times morbid. I got to say, um, mm-hmm. but but with the right, always the right heart was there. But it was just the presentation of it was always a, a little bit different. But oh, that's really good because I I actually found you. Can I just say a bit of history? Is that is that I I I spoke to. Um, Martin Lang, who he he's a former player, Queensland player, and he mm-hmm. he I, I was saying, Martin, I really want to talk to to someone about um, why why players are struggling so much and the role science plays as well in maybe losing adrenaline, uh, not not being maybe a little bit addicted to adrenaline when you finish retiring and so forth. And he said, mate, there's only one bloke, and I'm, I'm I don't know him really, but I'm I'm on LinkedIn with him, and he said, this is the guy you need to talk to, see if you can get to him. And uh, so I'm glad. I'm very glad we. Uh, he he rec- he said, you know, he recommended your name, and it's a, uh, it's a major, it's a major um, help to me because I've I often meet meet athletes, um, and we talk about life after football, and we 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 all sort of feel this loss, and you know, it's it's something that it's hard to explain unless you've been through it, and it's not just athletes, you know, it's a. You know, I spoke to a lawyer recently, retired, and he was like, I, you know, I don't know, I'm just like, you know, he was feeling those, and I could really understand. And with football, obviously, every week there's this intense sort of battle and there's camaraderie, and once it all finishes, you know, a lot of players sort of struggle. Did 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 any of your focus of your studies, did, did it delve in, into that space? It was all, what was it more aimed at, 
uh, helping players, you know, navigate their time. I spent tons, tons of time with players, helping them um, go from playing and not playing. There was a study back in the '60s and '70s in the United States about successful business people. You know, people who are in charge of General Motors, General Electric, things like that. And within two years of retiring, they died. And they wow. said, well, what's going on? And what had happened was all their life they'd been making big decisions and making a difference. And suddenly going out fishing, working in the Rose Garden, the brain says, well, if you don't want to live, I'll get you to die. One of the things are, the brain says, if you're not going somewhere, if you're not achieving something, I'm going to give you pain. And if you don't try to fix it, help yourself sabotage. And an illustration of this is in my office right now. It's a long office. If I put a plank on it and said, walk the plank without touching the carpet, dead easy. If I put that plank 10 stories up, it's really hard. Mm. But it's the same skills. And the reason is you're thinking, I don't want to die. Now, if I say, don't think of an apple, you think of an apple. Mm. But what happens, you're not aware. As soon as you get scared, you lean back. And the brain says, the moment you lean back, you don't want to succeed. It's like in cricket. If I'm leaning towards the bowler with the bat up, and when the ball hits the bat, I don't watch the ball hit the bat. My computer, brain computer, lets the ball hit the bat. I look for gaps. But if I lean towards the keeper, I watch the ball hit the back because I don't want to get out, and I look for fielders. Mm. What's that, what happens in, in, in life, that what happens what, when you retire, see, in sports, especially in professional sports, your life's organized, but you're always looking forward to something. Mm. Even when you're on a break, you're looking forward to having a break and then coming back. When you retire, there's no more goals. And the brain says you need goals. One of the big things I do with players in the, towards the end of their careers saying you need to set some goals. Maybe if you do some training, whatever you do. Even when you get injured. Uh, I had a, a really good Aussie Rules player years ago, and he broke his leg. And he was just feeling really down. I said, well, while you're rehabbing, what you can do is learn more about Aussie Rules. And he did, did even more than that. He started coaching a junior team while he was rehabbing. Now, he came back a better footballer than he was before, but you see, the rehab wasn't depressing for him because he was achieving something. Mm. And what has to happen in life is you always have to be achieving something. And sometimes I worry about the people who, you know, the, the lesser players are not a problem because they needed income, so they have to get something to win. But if you've been very, very good at a player, say, for example, a tennis player, and you've earned lots and lots of money, what you have to do is say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to just sit back and rest my laurels. I need to be achieving something. And in life, what to do that? You find that people, when they go through courtship, they're always looking for the next date. But once they get married, quite often what they're thinking is, well, and I, I have this illustration that the woman ends up having a, an affair with her kids. The man's having an affair with his job. Mm. In other words, they stop focusing on each other. Mm. And they're surprised that the romance goes out of the, the relationship. And so in life, it's very, very important that we always have something that we're trying to achieve, something we're trying to gain. And if we do that, um, that helps us get somewhere. The moment we stagnate, the brain says you don't want to go well. And the brain will give us pain. Emotional pain is always good. It means what I am doing is not working. So the moment I start stagnating, my brain's in pain. Now, if I start getting depressed, 
and get into the booze or drugs or whatever, then I'm self-sabotaging. Mm. Just like, you know, if you're my 800-meter runner in the Olympics, and I say, Jason, when you're in the final, I say, Jason, you got here using plan A. If you use plan A tomorrow, you're going to have 97% chance of getting gold. But if you go to plan Z, which we should because it's important, you'll get 53%. You'd fire me as a coach. Mm. Well, getting back to the plank illustration, if you lean forward and look up, there's very little chance you'll fall off the plank. So you know when, when you're walking on the carpet, you have 97% chance of success. Now your life's on the line. You lean back and you follow a strategy that gives you 53% chance of succeeding. Mm. And you'd have to fire that coach. And so often in life, what we do, when we're under pressure, when things have changed, we go to Z. And it's very, very important. We've been made, we've been created to keep achieving, keep doing something. I might be somebody who's 98 years old. Those people who live longer are always planning, what am I going to do today? What am I going to do today? Mm. And they're looking forward to it. Whereas mm. you see some people much younger who are very sickly because they're simply saying, oh, life's bad. If only things are better. And one of the things it's very important in life and not just in sport that we never say if only. Because when you say if only things were better, we're saying until something beyond my control changes. And we're not made for that. We're going to have to move the if the other side. Only if I do what can I make this obstacle an opportunity? Only if I do what make this problem a potentiality? Mm. So getting back to the athletes, when you retire, it's very, very important you get something new to capture your imagination, to capture your energy. And then suddenly what happens is the adrenaline is from sport. And one of the sad things is a lot of people's esteem came from just being a sports person. Mm. Now, fortunately, I've never had that problem because um, when I played rugby league, I was so bad I never got sledged. <laughs> but the thing is that when you get somebody who's all their adulation comes from being a good sports person, Yep. And they think, I'm good because I'm good at sport. Well, see, you're not good because you're good at sport. You may be good at sport, but you're good because you're a decent human being and making a difference in life. And so what we have to make sure is that when you transfer from being a sports person, you're still making a difference in life. So that, that gives our ego an identity and makes it feel worthwhile. But you don't feel like when, when I... Uh, retired. You're right. I'll touch on that identity. But one one of the issues you, you face, even if you do go into, say, a job that's that's uh, you know it's a good job and there are goals and so forth. Do you feel there's still a, a, a struggle there because part of the adrenaline that you would get weekly from playing? is no longer there. You, you, it's very hard to replicate that in, an, in another job, even if it's a good job and it's a rewarding job. That, that, uh, and is there a science behind that? Can you become addict, yes. addicted to the, the adrenaline? And how do, you, how do you deal with that? How, what's the coping me- mechanism? You've got to find something else that gives you the adrenaline. I remember um, Lee Matthews once said publicly that um, when he left coaching, coaching had the highs of going into the game and then the lows of the game didn't go well mm. and he became a commentator and he said there, it was like neutral there were no highs no lows as you said the endorphins weren't firing as yes. a commentator yes and uh, but one of the things that he said he had to do as a coach he had to, to take his imagination 
you know, something that he could do that would make him want to uh, perform. Right, right. I hear, I hear, I hear what you're saying because I, I think, you know, like for myself, I, I, I trained exceptionally hard once I retired. I actually got, went from 112 to 100 kilos because I trained so much, looking for that that same feeling. Do you know what I mean? Looking for that. That, um, and it wouldn't have worked for you because no, when you're training as an athlete, you're training to get a result. When you're just training for training sake, the brain won't give you the same adrenaline right. because you're, right. you're not achieving anything with it. Now, yeah. if you've been a training to say, listen, I've never run a triathlon before, and you're training to run the triathlon, you would have found the endorphins were there. But if you're just training, you say, listen, I've always trained. I want to keep fit. You know, I want to do all these things. It wouldn't have worked for you. Right, right. Okay. I hear you. Now, with the, with the, uh, the issue you touched on about identity, that's, that's, a, that's a very um, painful one to address. I found in my life that once I – tell you what happened to me was, was uh, I'd retired. I played 14 years, started with St. George, went to the Sharks and retired 2005. And then – so it's it's sort of August, you know, September you f- you finish, and then by February it's up again. And one of the players, Paul Gallon, he he texted me. He said, "I'll oh, come and come and sit with us." And you know, like boys want to see you. And I go, "Oh no, nah, changes in the team. There's a new front rower. Just like I feel, I feel weird going to sit with the team before the game." But he said, "No, no, no, come come and sit." And then I went and sat with him um, just to say good day. And then this young kid came up and. And asked Paul to sign his uh, a jersey, and 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 it wasn't Paul Gallon, the Paul Gallon that we know now. Um, he wasn't captain; he was still finding his way. He was um, up and coming, uh, brilliant player. But yeah, he wasn't who he was now. But he signed the jersey, and he and he handed it to me. And the little kid pulled it off me and said, "Who's that?" And I just remember it hit me like a sledgehammer, to be honest with you, because I had fallen unbeknownst to me. Of of really being propped up, I was a prop for a living, but I was propped up by my identity based on what I did out there on the field, and not realizing that you know there's a deeper value to us as as human beings. I mean, what we do is always important. It, it means a lot. Don't get me wrong, but in a sense, it's not who you are. But I went through quite a journey to be honest, and I'm talking years quite, in terms of actually coming to grasp with that um is that something that you've 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 de- yeah. had experience with with other other players and athletes it's it's not just in sport it's in a lot of things mm. when when you believe that something that you do in itself makes you who you are you're in real trouble because if i think you know me being a good uh walking person and i have an accident and become a uh, paraplegic then I think I'm not good anymore. Mm. Whereas, in fact, Phil Jonesy in a wheelchair is just as important as Phil Jonesy, who was ambulatory, could walk. Mm. And I think what happens too often in sport, our identity comes from what the press think about us. And that's why that's an up and down journey, because mm. at times in sport you don't do well. But the big thing, you're right, is um, I always tell people being put on a pedestal, pedestal is another word for a toilet, Mm-hmm. And uh, and what happens is that 
if all your adrenaline comes from people thinking you're good at what you do, and I see this with actors and all sorts of people that mm. um, they had an identity by something, and then after all, people don't know who they were. I remember, uh, again, thinking about Lee Matthews. He was telling me that his uh, son one day, he was talking about John McEnroe. This is, you know, 20 years ago. Wow. And the guy said, who? The son said, who? Oh. And I mean, you're thinking, you got to know who John, but he just didn't know them. Yeah. And, w- and what happens is that, you know, there's like a meteorite. We, we shine for a while and go down. And so if my identity is that people know me, then my identity is not in me. My identity is what other people think about me. Mm. And one of the things I try to work with athletes, even while they're still playing, your identity is not what the press thinks about you. It's not what the fans think about you. It's not even what your teammates think about you. It's what you think about you. Because that's the one thing that remains a constant. Mm. And that's why we have to continually ask ourselves, you know, if I was arrested on charges of trying to be successful, would there be enough evidence to convict me? Or put it another way, is what I'm doing getting me where I want to get? And it's really tough, as you said, when you're in the professional sporting supply, because we do get a lot of adulation if you're good mm. um, in it. And the same thing as a performance psychologist. People know who I am. Now, I guarantee within a couple of years of me retiring, they'll be saying, Phil who? They, they won't know me. Mm. So if all my identity is, am I getting calls from radio stations to talk about my life? And I'll know I'm not anymore. Well, then I'm no longer any good. Whereas the really important thing is I'm still being a good husband, a good father. Mm. Am I still doing little things around the best? I'm actually thinking now about writing yet another book, uh, A Christian Perspective for Psychology, uh, with my son. Who's, I got two sons. One's a doctor in medicine. The other's a doctor in psychology. Wow. And, uh, and that's just, you know, I'm 73, but I still need new goals. I still need something. Because, you know, if you're not going forward, you're sinking. And that's the, getting back to the identity. Is mm. My identity cannot be what other people think of me. But that's, that's, that's a really tough thing. I've got to say, it's a, it's a, it's the point, your point is, is correct. And it's, but when you delve deeper into, and given the different people's backgrounds and their, and their parenting and, you know, the love and acceptance they may or may not have received. I mean, because, I mean, my dad left when I was very young, left us in a very, very hard situation. Um, mm-hmm. when my sister got hit by a car and my mum mm-hmm. pretty much single-handedly raised four of us and with with my sister who had enormous now health uh, challenges, uh, was on life support for quite some time. You know, I, I never knew my dad and I, I can see as I grew up that left a, a huge hole. So this... Um, this, in a sense, there's an approval addiction. I, I grew up like, like me, accept me, and let me. You, do you know what I mean? And there's there's so many different stories and backgrounds to people, um, which it's kind of like they're thirsty, I guess, for the, for acceptance. They're thirsty for for to be validated, um, and that that's at the 
the core of their being and sometimes mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That probably has to be uprooted in a way and and Don't ch- just let me interrupt you. Don't just yeah. be uprooted. It's, it's got to be chatted about. You know, I find this in people's religious faith. They say, how could God like me because I'm no good? Mm. I need to be better. Whereas, in fact, it's the opposite. You know, let the little children come unto me. You know, yes. Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, That's the right. thief did nothing good but got forgiven. Oh, and I yeah. think what happens is in life, we keep worrying about how good am I? Mm. And as in your case, no father role. And so approval was just so important. Now, yes, psych- so psychologically, we all like approval. It, it, it makes us feel good. And we hate, I always tell people, I hate detest criticism, but I appreciate it. Because the last thing I want is to be criticized. But on the other hand, I've got to work out that if I want to keep moving forward, it's about me moving forward. It's not about, like, as much as I love my wife, if my happiness is totally in her liking me, I'm in trouble because I stuff up mm-hmm. a lot. I'm a human being. And so it's not in that. It's not in my boys approving of me. Now, yes, hopefully what I'm doing, I will get approval. But it's got to be, am I as an individual moving forward? And what happens is, sadly, um, in sport. It's not about what you think about yourself. It's what either selectors in cricket or the coach or whoever thinks about you, the Olympic committee, it's what they think about you. Mm. And so you're able to not worry about what you think. You keep, you have certain things you can do to get them to think. But ultimately in life, it's really about, am I doing what makes me a reasonably fulfilled person? And this is why sometimes that's where my role comes in. You need to talk to somebody and say, okay, I'm feeling unhappiness now. Now, if you're feeling unhappy, the brain is saying what you're doing right now is not working. So when you felt bad after retiring, your brain, and our brains are willing slaves, our brain says, master, anytime what you're doing is wrong, I'll make you feel pain. For example, I'm walking in my office as I'm talking to you. I'm one of these people like to walk and talk. Um, if I step, and I'm barefoot at the moment, if I stepped on a thumbtack, that would give me excruciating horrible pain. Mm. Now, the reason the brain gives me pain is so if you keep doing what you're doing, it's going to get worse. Now, even when I pull the thumbtack out, I still have pain because the brain says, no, it could be infected. You need to fix that. Now, if I was walking in a shoe and there is a stone in my shoe, that gives me pain. But as soon as I pull the stone out, I have no more pain because the brain says what you're doing is no longer going to cause you worries. Mm. I had a real estate agent come to me and uh, about four months ago, and he said, so my life's spiraling out of control. So what's happened? He said, well, my wife left me. And I said, oh, yeah, but what have you changed? What do you mean? What were you doing when you weren't feeling pain? He said, I go for a run in the morning before breakfast, have a nutritious breakfast. And when I got to work, I'd make sure to find three people to talk to, have a joke with, make sure I rang three clients. And if I, if I didn't have anybody to see, I'd get out on the road and see some properties. I said, what are you doing now? He said, I'm going for a run. Not having a nutritious breakfast, matter of fact, having a bit of hooch. And he said, when I get to work, I'm not talking to people. 
And they're not making the phone calls. I'm not getting on the road. Now, in sales, there's three rules of sales. Rule number one is see the people. Rule number two is see the people. Rule number three is see the people. Mm-hmm. I said, mate, go back to plan A. They said, why? Because what you, reason you came here, people only come to me in pain. Nobody comes to me to say, listen, my sport's great, my marriage is great, my business is great. So when they're in pain, I know what they're doing is not working. So I said to them, go back to plan A, which, and he rang me a week later, he said, unbelievable. I'm going for a run now. I'm having a nutrition breakfast, talking to people at work, making the phone calls, and my wife's even talking to me again. So what we have to work out is that we tend to try to ignore the pain. Mm. And one of the things I say to people, anytime you have a most of pain, whether it be after you retired from sports, could be anything. You need to embrace the pain and say, okay, what I'm doing right now is not working. I need to come up with a better strategy. Mm. It's so good we're talking about this because, you know, yes, it goes beyond sport, but I've got to say the mix of psychology and sport, it, it's still very foreign and, and new to many people. Um, I never experienced really any um, uh, assistance in that realm when, when I was playing and um, obviously now we're, we're starting at least to understand how a good frame of mind is, is just so important, you know, for all of us. But, well, actually, but, can I disagree with you on that? Yeah. Because, see, where, where I come from, that's why I call myself a performance psychologist, not a sports psychologist, even though I'm a sports psychologist, I guess, thing, is that most sports psychologists say you have to have a good frame of mind. Now, my dad was a psychologist, and years ago, a man came to him and said, Oh, Dr. Jonesy, I've fallen out of love with my wife. I want to divorce her. Mm. My dad said, fine. What I want you to do for the next five days, do something special for wife every day. He's like, what? Take her out to eat bars and flowers. On the sixth day, we'll talk about the divorce. Came back on the sixth day, said, Dr. Jones, you're embarrassed. My dad said, why? I fall in love with my wife. So what had happened is waiting to feel romantic mm. to act romantically. Mm. It's the other way around. Yep. When you act romantically, yep. you're romantic. Yep. So that I, as I said, I had a cricket here the other day. I said, does the ball or the bat care how you feel? And so this, there's this myth that if you don't have a good frame of mind, you can't perform. I don't always feel like a loving dad and a loving husband, but I can always act that way. Mm. And so when I start acting like a loving dad and loving husband, I start feeling that way. But if I said, until I feel it, I, I tell the story years ago, my youngest son, when he was 18, was playing indoor soccer and broke his elbow. Got a reward. And our house is like a three-tier level. We have two levels on one side, another level in between. Anyway, we have these carpeted stairs. And he's coming down the carpeted stairs. We just washed him, and he slipped. So to protect himself, he twisted, hit a pot plant, severed his kidney. I see you. Now, fortunately, rhinologist saved it. But I was running this two-day course. Mm. And my plan A is speak quickly, tell really bad jokes. For example, why the guy call us Kerwin hinges? She has something to adore. Why'd the guy get rid of his vacuum cleaner? It sucks. I mean, I have really, really bad jokes. Yeah, yeah. So, I just got to say, I'm a script writer, and and uh, I just got to say, if I ever need some real bad dad jokes, I'm going to give you a call. <laughs> <laughs> give me a call. That's right. Anyway, um, I was running this course, and I was speaking quickly, telling bad jokes, talking about Timothy, and somebody said to me, "So, how can you be so upbeat with the Shannon Hospital?" I said, would it help Timothy for me to be downbeat? Well, no. Would it help me to be downbeat? No. Would it help you for me to downbeat? Mm. Well, no. So why should we be downbeat? Oh, everybody knows. <laughs> when you don't feel good, 
You can't act good. Say, okay, people, let's imagine you're sitting here, you're so depressed, life sucks so much, you need three straws, and a fire breaks out. How many of you say, well, I would leave, but I'll wait till I'm not depressed before I go? <laughs> and you sit on their faces. They say, let's Very even true. be positive. Very true. I say, let's imagine, I tell you, people, I got a bar of gold bullion for you outside, but you got to get it within 180 seconds. How many of you say, well, I would get it, but I'm depressed? And you see the looks in their faces. See, one of the myths in life. is feelings, being led by feelings, isn't it? I, I right. get wrong by journalists all the time. How can this guy play with all these off-field problems? I said, well, which skills doesn't he have? Tackling, running. What the skills doesn't he have? And see, what's happened is you believe this guff that, that when you have self-doubt, when you have self-worry. I had a cricketer from Bangladesh one time saying, oh, Dr. Fitz, I don't believe in myself. And I told him about an Australian cricketer, a very famous cricketer. They said, he doesn't believe in himself at all. And, oh, if he doesn't believe in himself, then he's very good. Then I can do well. And that <laughs> Bangladesh cricketer went out and got a, got a century. I had another cricketer say to me, oh, Dr. Fitz, I get out in the nervous 90s. I said, how do you bat in the non-nervous 80s? Oh, I lean forward, look at the bowler. I said, what do you do in between balls when the ball's going back to the bowler? Oh, I move around. So what do you do in the nervous 90s? Oh, I lean towards the, keep, the keeper, and I, I, and, I, and I don't walk around between bowls. Say, forgot the strength. When you lean towards the bowler, and you walk around between bowls, you bat well. When you don't, when you don't um, lean towards the bowler and walk around between bowls, you get out. What should you do the next time? And that guy got three centuries in that World Cup wow. in, um, in Australia. Now, the point about it was, they actually believed you had to believe in yourself. They thought they had to be nervous. I had a girl coming one time. She was 13. And um, Ian Healy has this thing where uh, people who, uh, he's a really wonderful person, feels that if some people can't afford it, can we put people to you? And so this girl came to me from Hill's thing. And uh, I said, why are you here? She said, oh, I get really nervous. I said, no, no, nerves are fuel. It's like the fuel in your car. It's really good. Just don't get a match to it. Mm. And, and the brain says, when I give you more fuel, are you gonna, do you want to perform or do you want to fail? And so I said to her, she, I said, it's just fuel. Not fun. She said, no, no, I, I vomit. I said, when you run at the lower track meet and you run fast and don't vomit, what do you do in the car? Oh, I pop rubbish in the car. And I, I run around and talk to other kids at the track. So what do you do at the important meets where you run badly and vomit? She says, oh, I, um, I'm quiet in the car and I don't move. So see, we've got this straight. When you talk rubbish in the car, rubbish in the track, you run fast and don't vomit. When you're quiet in the car, quiet at the track, you're in batting vomit. And she's going to Queensland track meet the next day. What do you think you should do tomorrow? She's going to plan A. She broke three Queensland records, and she's now running for Australia. Wow. See, she thought she had to feel confident. Mm. I have this rule in life. If you can't see it, you can't fix it. I've never seen a confidence. I've never seen a motivation. I've never seen an attitude. For example, if you're working for me, I'd never say you have a bad attitude, you're undisciplined, you're lazy. Well, two reasons. I, I can't judge you because I'm not perfect. But secondly, I've never seen those things. I can say you haven't done two to three things. Four to six things you've done badly. You're taking five times longer than somebody else. So when somebody comes to me, they talk about things they can't control. I have, as you mentioned before, I've got four degrees and a doctorate in psychology, 50 years of um, clinical experience. I cannot control my mind or emotions. So if I'm angry at you, I have no control over that emotion. What I have control is saying up yours or g'day. Mm -hmm.
Mm. Or if you just got a job that I think I deserve, mm. and I think you backstabbed to get it, I have no control over feeling jealous. What I have control over is my reaction to it. So I can call you a backstabbing scoundrel, and everybody says, thank heavens we didn't give the job to Phil. Or I can say, look, I really thought I was going to get the job. I thought it was better for the job. How can I help you? Mm. Now, there's what performance psychologists teach, or positive psych. Uh, when, I, when I teach performance psychology, teaches this, that always ask yourself, is your reaction to your situation making it better? And you know it's not if your brain gives you pain. Mm. Does that make sense? It makes sense. It makes sense. And while you were talking, um, I just remembered, and I, I heard this, and you'd be able to confirm it or not, but I remember, I remember rumors about Alan Langer, probably one of the greatest halfbacks of all time, dry reaching before every game. He did. And and, and and I used to actually when I when I heard that I was actually I felt better I felt better because the nerves that I used to have you know, like you'd often go to yourself, Why am I playing this game? Because the nerves that they they'd come, you know, at full force. And I remember thinking, but oh if Alan Langer's vomiting and going out and playing like he does, you must be able to do it regardless of, of the way you know your your, your mindset is in a, in a sense. I had an Aussie Rules player with the Lions, almost all Australian for 15 years, wonderful player. In his third last game, he came up to me and he said, Phil, I'm really worried. I said, what's wrong? He says, actually feel good. Now, he, he had, I, I do profiles on every player, whatever, and there's one profile that these people are never going to be up themselves, but they're always going to doubt themselves. So if I, like that cricketer I was talking about before, mm. um, that if I judge you as being 7 out of 10, They'll judge themselves to be five out of ten. So they never are confident. They're never going to be arrogant up themselves. They're never going to try to get away from responsibility. Man, they take too much responsibility. And I had a fencer in Melbourne, like Olympic fencer. She said, Phil, I'm ranked fifth in the world. Why don't I believe backing myself? And told her about the footballer. When I told the footballer about her, he said, welcome to the club, baby. I had a jockey here just the other day. She had that profile. I told her, welcome to the club, baby. Now, the thing about that is, if you have to feel confident to play confidently, you're in trouble. Mm. But fortunately, you can always play confidently. But going back to that plank, since stories up, you don't have to feel confident, but you can ask yourself, which strategy is going to be better? I had a, another jockey here years ago came to me. He said, oh, I've lost my confidence. And of course, I'm a real sarcastic guy, and I picked up a basket. It's not in here. Where is it? You remember where you lost it? And he gave me this funny look. Now, he's the sort of guy that when he rides well, he got to the track late because he had a profile that, and he's like me, I'm the sort of person, the last thing I need is information. I have to trust my instincts. And uh, don't give me details. Give me a big picture. And uh, anyway, I said, what, do you, uh, what have you changed? He says, well, when I ride well, I get to the track late, talk rubbish. And when the trainer talks to you, what do you do? Oh, I hardly listen. Okay, so what are you doing now? I'm getting the track early. And studying for, and when the, tra- the trainer talks, I take notes. Now, my wife and I have totally different personalities, and it's like Microsoft and Apple. You don't put Apple on a Microsoft or Microsoft on an Apple because you'll crash. So what this jockey was doing, he was putting the wrong software into his computer. So I said, "Listen, when you get there late, talk rubbish, hardly listen. What happens to you on the horse? I lean forward, always a loose, hands are loose. It's almost like the horse rides me." So lately, when you've been getting there early, studying form and taking notes, what happens? 
He says, well, when I get on the horse, oh, I'm leaning further back. I mentioned before, leaning back always turns you off. And my elbows are tight, my hands are tight, and I lose. So what do you do tomorrow? So oh, I think I need to ride, go back to plan A. He rode two winners. About six months later, down in Sydney, riding this course, and you know you turn your mobile off. When I turned my mobile back on, that, uh, I rang him. And I said, you wanted me. So I thought I needed you. I just found something to talk crap with. I rode a winner in a second. In other words, it's very important for people to learn that you don't have to feel good to act good. Mm. But when you act good, it feels good. And one of the things where I find when people come to me, they're all worried about getting the mindset right, getting their attitude right. So, no, get your actions right, like that real estate agent, and other things that take care of themselves. That's so good. I mean, share a little bit about your work at the time at the Broncos. It was a hugely successful sort of period when you were there. And, uh, you know, probably the reason why... Wayne called you to, to go to South Sydney, but what was it like un, under Wayne Bennett? And did he have an approach to psychology and sport? Did he leave that to you? Or Well, again, it, it wasn't like there's segments. One of the Wayne's best things is he treated players, mm. and players knew that when Wayne was working with them, it wasn't just to get the team play better. It's for them to be better. And even players that had to get dropped from Broncos for disciplinary reasons, they would still ring him. I remember one player uh, got dropped and Wayne got him from Newcastle when he went down there. Wayne said, once you play your dues, it's fine. So every player knew under Wayne that he was wanting them to be a better person. Mm. And that's why uh, players, I mean, we got in trouble with the Broncos because players were ringing him up. And the Broncos all, this went the last time, oh, you're trying to do other things. He was actually, players ring him all the time. And they always ask, you know, what's your opinion? Even, you know, Benji Marshall said he rang Wayne. Where do you think I should do? And that's, he went to, to South. But he didn't bring him to go to South. He said, what, what should I do? And so Wayne's greatest strength is that he really cares about his players. I mean, he's a great coach. Don't get me wrong. He wouldn't be there if he wasn't a good coach. But I think his greatest strength is dealing with people. His coaches know he cares about it. Matter of fact, one of the reasons he was worried about leaving the Broncos is that some of his support staff might get fired. And he yeah. thought that would be unfair. And as it turns out, they were. But he was worrying about them. And I think your good coaches, you know Craig Bellamy cares, cares about his players. You know, those sorts of coaches. Lee Matthews cares about the players. You know, mm. those, that's the really so important. So if you have a club where the culture is that everybody knows, yes, we want to win, but we never want you to sacrifice who you are to get there. And at times, we're going to pull you up, even if you're being successful on the field, that we think some of your life needs improvement. And... We care about you. And I think that's, that's what's Wayne's greatest strength, and I think that was the Broncos' greatest strength, mm. that every player there understood. Now, Wayne tells the story, so I can tell it publicly, is that when Alf came back for the second time, uh, Alfie Langer um, came back for the second time, at one stage he wanted to leave. And Wayne says, can you talk to him? Because we, we want him there. And uh, Alf was worried about, I can't be the player I was at 27. And I said, Alf, we don't need a player at 27. At this stage, they, didn't, they needed some leadership, mm. and we need the leadership. In fact, he was still a really good player. Mm. But Alf was, you know, had high standards for himself. Yeah. Now, the fact is that Wayne was worried about Alf as a person. And, and that's, that's the greatest strength I find with Wayne. And you find any mm. of the players, when they talk about Wayne, they may have criticism about various things, 
but they never criticized that he judged them falsely. Mm. And Wayne used to have on a thing in, in the Broncos that said this, God, give me a coach that asks more of me than I ask of myself. Wow. What a great what a great saying. And I think I think there was a saying as well that people don't care how much you know until they care how much until they know how much you care. Um, which is really what you know what what you're saying, and I and I am aware of, um, and I probably need to blame you now, knowing <laughs> your insight into Al- Alfie Langer, because I was part of that Origin team for New South Wales, and Alfie came back from England, to <laughs> 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 and I was thinking, surely, surely he's over the hill. Shortly he comes out and just blows us out of the water. So, thank you very much, uh, Doctor Phil, for that. <laughs> but, uh, you you've covered so much ground, and. Um, you know, it's just been. You know, we could talk for for, for ages, to be honest with you. But I, for the for the benefit of time, is there is there any other um, area that you know you that you need to emphasise? You know, as in mental health in sport, or is there any other um, you know progress you think you could? Because you, you you're so well versed in so so many areas. I, I think the biggest thing I, I've already said, it, but I just can't stress this enough, is that people need to embrace when they're in pain, emotional pain. Mm. We, we, we tend to do what happens if I have a knee injury. People think pain is good. The doctor will give me more pain. Once, once the pain, when they, when they hurt my knee, when I go to a physio or a doctor, the pain is finding what the, the ideology, which is the word for cause. What's the cause of my pain? Because unless you find the cause of the pain, you don't get the cure. And yet, what I find when people have emotional pain, so if I go to a doctor say, um, my knee's hurting, he'll give me more pain. But if I go to a doctor say, my marriage is breaking up, I'll get a prescription. But there's nothing wrong with me. Mm. And so somehow there's this myth that if you have emotional pain, since we don't know the cause, we can't find the cure. So we'll give you palliative care. And the worst thing I think can happen, and I, I'm, this is my bias, is that if I have emotional pain, I, I, going back to physical pain, I don't mind you giving me short-term something to stop the pain in my knee, but ultimately I want the pain in the knee to go away because the cause has changed. And the same thing is, if I'm having pain, the last thing I need is me to ignore it. So when I go to a doctor and he gives me um, medicine after my marriage breakup, what my brain was saying, so the way you're handling the marriage breakup is not working. Mm-hmm. So that uh, if I go to the doctor and say I'm depressing, by the way, I never use the word depression because you can't see it, but if I'm depressing, which means stopping, I go to the doctor I'm depressing, says you need to take time off work. I say, no, that's going to stop me more. I say, no, what I need to do is, he says, don't worry, I'll give you an antidepressant so you can't feel it. That's not good. Now, I was Dr. Phil long before that guy in America. Mm. This woman rang up years ago and said, oh, Dr. Phil, I'm so depressed, I can't get out of bed. What should I do? And, of course, I said, get out of bed. And uh, she, her brain was giving her pain, which response is not working. So the most important thing I could give advice to anybody, whether you're still playing, retiring from sport, whatever, if you're feeling bad, your brain says the way you're handling it's not working. The last thing you want to do is get rid of the pain. If there's a fire goes off and the alarm goes off, you don't turn off the alarm before the fire. And so... I just can't stress it enough. Anywhere in life, anytime I have problems, if I think my wife's not liking me, I'm feeling negative, say, what's going on? Now, she may only have gas, but the thing is, I will ask her. 
because whenever there's pain, I'm asking myself, I might be doing something wrong that's not working. Mm. Now, it may only be transient. It may, it may be minor. But if I don't acknowledge that when I'm feeling emotional pain, my brain is saying, Master, what you're doing is not working. Mm. It's, it's, so, it's so profound what we're saying. Yet it's something that, you know, I've, I've always you know, heard the saying that pain is, is God's megaphone. You know where he, where he whispers to you know to us and or shouts in our pain really, but um, well, we've been created. We've been created yeah. in a way See, we wouldn't survive. You know, forgetting where, where you come from, whether you're religious or not, mm. as a species, we wouldn't have survived if we didn't have fear when we're, what we're doing is not mm. working, didn't have anxiety, what we're doing. For example, a soldier at the beginning of a war, he gets scared, and when he gets scared, he stands stiff. Mm. Towards the end of the war, when he gets scared, he dies to the ground. And he's worked out, rather than just feel, be paralyzed by pain, react to the pain. Mm. And that's what we've been made. We've been made, when every time we get pain, get a mess of contact in your foot. Whenever you have pain, react to it mm. so that you can make things better. And we've been made that way. Mm. And uh, I often quote a verse, First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen that says this, there's no situation given us in life that is too difficult for us to handle. That mm. within that situation... We always have the power and the resources to deal with it. So if I get diagnosed with terminal cancer, if I say if only I didn't have cancer, I'll probably die in one year. Mm. If I say only if I do what? Can I make the next two years good? I'll probably live before. I'll still die. Mm. And, and the thing is, we've been made to the point that whenever there's something negative happens to us, we have an ability to try to make it better. We may not be able to solve it. Make it better. Like that real estate agent his marriage may not be solved, but at least the way he's dealing with it is better than the way he was dealing with it. Mm. It's so good. It's so good because, you know, p- pain, I, I agree, it's, a, it's really it's an opportunity. And from a spiritual point of view, it's not for God to to see how strong you are, but I think it's for you to see how strong you are. You know, it's like when you're bench pressing. When you're bench pressing in the gym, it's like how much weight can you can you lift? You don't know unless unless you put the weight on. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. Um, I'm just so grateful for your for your uh, for the for the conversation and for your years of, of of service in this field. And I know it's not over. Um, I know there's there's more ahead. But uh, you know you've really been a, a trailblazer in the field of sports uh, psychology, and you've you've helped a lot of people. Uh, my only regret is that I I would have uh, greatly benefited from having someone like yourself. Uh, when I was when I was playing, uh, but uh, I'm glad that things are slowly sort of changing in that realm, and and clubs are seeing the value of of that. Yeah, it's that, good. They're doing a good job in that. A lot of clubs are now getting yeah. more development officers, getting yep. people like we're talking about the Broncos before. They've been Petra Sevensiva in to help players, and he's not a psychologist, but no. you know he's developed a wonderful guy. Yep. And I think the more and more they do, they say it's not just about how you pass the ball and make tackles. It's about you as a person. Dr. Phil Joyce, thank you so much for your time and thank you everyone for listening as well. And if, if you missed tonight, of course you can uh, catch up next week, Sunday morning, 5.30 to 7am. We re- replay this this uh, conversation. It's one not to miss. Tell, tell your friends. It's also on 2CH Digital. But also... If uh, you're not listening on the wireless, as we say, you can go to uh, 1170 SEN Catch Up, uh, go to uh, 
um, the spirit of sport and of course all our interviews are there and you know this is one that I really feel whether you're interested in sport or not it's going to be it's a it's a life it's a it's a it's one that you'll get a lot of nuggets for your life out of I know I have and I I could speak to you a lot longer but I know uh, our time is gone but thank you so much again Dr. Phil for your time I really really appreciate it my pleasure glad that you rang and everybody have a great week. I uh, trust uh, the best is yet to come. Stay positive because, uh, and even if you don't feel positive, as Dr. Phil would say, do it anyhow. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. Do it afraid. I'm Jason Stevens, and you've been listening to The Spirit of Sport.